Okay, can you just start by saying your name and what your job title is? Yes, I'm Tony Brett. I'm the Director of Medical Sciences Division IT Services. Okay, and um, going back to the, the very beginning of when you first got interested in, well, I suppose science more broadly, um, uh, how did you get started in your career and what were the main kind of staging posts on the way? Okay, so um, I arrived in Oxford University right at the end of the 1980s. And so you'd already decided to be a scientist at that stage? Well, I had applied successfully to read a physics degree. Mm -hmm. um, so I think I, yes, I probably made that decision at 16, at the mm. point where I was mm. choosing A-level studies. It could have been language, it could have been science, and it was a tough decision, and I chose science. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I have any regrets. I enjoy language, <laughs> but didn't obviously pursue it any further. So I did a, well, I came to Oxford to do a physics degree and decided it was far too obscure, so I actually changed to chemistry in the first five weeks. Uh, and so I did a chemistry degree and graduated in 1993. Mm -hmm. um, at that point, I had a school friend who was working here in the, um, the Institute of Molecular Medicine, now called the Wetherill Institute of Molecular Medicine, um, because she'd done, I think, a biochemistry degree. So it was in the first year of her doctorate when I was in my last year of my four-year chemistry degree. And um, IT was kind of supported by often sort of lab staff because that was the only way you got money to do IT back in the sort of early 90s. So anyway, the, the IMM decided that it wanted a, a proper IT person whose job it was to do IT rather than it being a bit of a sideline. And so the, the short version is that I was approached and got the job. So, so, so how had you become a wizard IT while doing a chemistry degree? Well, it had been an interest. Um, through childhood, and then in my part two year I studied physical chemistry, uh, doing a lot of nuclear magnetic resonance, um, and quite a lot of the research involved simulating the experiments uh, with programming. Uh, we used Fortran 77. Um, and so programming and simulating the, uh, the experiments and then actually doing the experiments, so that required quite a lot of physical IT and code writing mm, IT to mm, uh, mm. make all that work. So I suppose that's that's where it all came from. Mm, mm. I was always interested in computers in my college days. I was the one you'd find in the computer room at 10 o'clock at night rather than the bar, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, okay, yes, so you, so you started out uh, at the IMM as their, yes. their go-to person for IT. Yeah. And where did it go from there? Uh, so I did five years at the IMM and um, had appointed two extra IT staff to work with me at that point. Then an opportunity came up at, um, at my old college, Corpus Christi, actually, where I had read my chemistry degree five years ago at that point, um, to be their IT manager. They had um, decided they needed a full-time IT manager, having had a part-time IT person. So we joined as a team, and I did five years there. Um, did a lot of getting networking and telephony into student accommodation. That was sort of, that was 98 to 2003, so that was about the time that was happening. I'm just trying to remember, when, when did we all start using the internet? It's, it's very difficult to think of a pre-internet <laughs> mid, mid, mid to late 90s, Mid to really. late 90s. So students would expect to be able to get online by the end of the 90s. Maybe sort of 2000-ish. Yes, but, yes, um, yes. Yes, I mean, network connections in student rooms were were starting to become a thing in 99, 2000. Mm, yeah. And uh, yes, it's interesting reflecting. They, they got connections at uh, 10 megabits, and you know, your average broadband is probably five times that now and could be 10 times that in your own home. So it's, uh, it's amazing how it's moved on. Mm, mm. So that was five years. 
And then in 2003, I was asked to do a maternity leave cover at uh, what was then OUCS, the University Computing Service, which I did. So I split my time, I think, 60-40 between Corpus and OUCS. And at the end of that, there was a, an, an opening for me at OUCS, so I moved fully to OUCS in late 2003. Um, and I did various roles there. My main one was running the department called IT Support Staff Services. So I, my job was to coordinate the IT staff and run an annual conference and training events and supplier relationship management, that sort of thing. And this was um, for IT staff who were in other departments around the university? Indeed, and colleges, yes. yes. So I was at um, OUCS until it became IT Services in 2012. And I stayed for another four years. And then the opportunity for this role, the Director of Medical Sciences Division IT came up. Uh, so I applied and was successful. Mm. So I've been here coming on seven years now. Mm. So a, a kind of return to your original uh, attachment to, well, the, indeed, to, to yes, medical yes. research. Mm. <laughs> so what... Um, oh, I've got... You know, I've ordered to ask these questions in. Um, are, are there particular challenges to do with working with and for um, academics and clinicians? Um, so we don't work for clinicians when they're in that capacity. No. So we, we support research and teaching and administration. Yes. Clinical IT is provided by other body called IMNT, Information Management and Technology, which is part of the Oxford University Hospitals NHS Foundation Trust. Mm. So although we have a close relationship with them, we don't support clinical work. Um, but to answer your question, are there challenges? Yes, there are always challenges. I mean, research by its nature is unpredictable. You don't quite know what's around the corner. Um, the way research is funded means it's a bit lumpy. So a situation we often see, you'll, you'll have a PI get to the end of their grant and there might be a chunk of money left. So they might think, oh, I'll, I'll buy that bit of equipment that I need. Um, and then they'll come to us and say, oh, we've got this bit of equipment, it's going to be producing this vast amount of data, could you store it for us? And of course, <laughs> there's no budget for data storage, and uh, we can't just grow it and grow it and grow it. So, so that can be a challenge sometimes. My uh, approach to this role is to try and be on people's radars so they come and talk to us before making IT decisions so we can help them to make sustainable decisions. Um, we've had other departments that have bought more and more and more storage but don't have a plan for what happens when that particular hardware goes out of support and becomes a problem. So, uh, yes, there's some of the challenges. And I think in any IT operation, be it supporting academia or anything else, the more support you provide, the more support people want, mm, to be honest. Mm. So um, I guess we should get some idea of the scope of what you're dealing with. So you've got, you've got hardware, yep. you've got software, you've got storage, you've got communications. Yes, yeah, so networks right across the division. We work in close partnership with IT Services, who provides the networking around the city, sort of, you know, not on university estate. Uh, and then that effectively hands off to us as it comes into the buildings. So we're, we're managing networks across about 60 buildings, I think, at mm, the moment. Mm. And it's probably a, approaching 10,000 people who are eligible to use our services in medical sciences. And it's regarded by the users, presumably, as a kind of bottomless um, pit, as it were. It's just something that's on tap. Is it? Yes. Presumably, there's a lot of scurrying in the background that has to go on to make it feel like that. Yes, there's there's a lot of scurrying, and it doesn't always feel like a smoothly running tap either. Most of the time, I think it does. But uh, 
yes, in IT we like to use the image of the swan, you know, with the graceful body and neck above the water and the, and the feet flapping like crazy under the water where people can't see. Yes, that, that is the picture I had in my yes, mind. Yes, that's exactly uh, uh, how it looks, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and have the demands on IT systems increased as research has become, has become more data focused? Uh, yes, um, there is more and more demand for IT systems and IT systems that people can move around with while they're doing the research, uh, while they're gathering data. Um, and yes, data just gets bigger and bigger as you know the speed of sequencing machines gets quicker, the resolution of microscopes gets bigger, and there is more and more data and more and more need to move it around quickly mm. too. And where do you actually keep it as a matter of interest? I mean, one hears about <coughs> massive data stores in the Arctic because of the heat issues, but yes, do we keep um, all ours here or have we got some of it parked elsewhere? So the university keeps quite a lot of data on site. I mean, in terms of medical sciences, we have a fairly large data centre at the John Radcliffe and another fairly large one on the Old Road Campus site. So that means that if we lose one of them, the other one will, uh, will support. But that model of kind of owning all the storage is is getting to the point of unsustainability. So we're actively investigating using cloud storage. And of course the university's Nexus 365 system is all Microsoft Cloud. So that's not servers that the university owns or uh, has to look after. Um, the university does have a data center in Slough, the Disk Versus Center, uh, where there's quite a lot of kit um, off offloaded. And, um, and some up in Bedbrook, which is university land so it's kind of spread around the city mm, mm, mm. and cloud is i think partly the solution to um to this problem of ever demanding um or ever bigger demands on on data um we have a new research group perhaps appear in the university and they might have i don't know 500 terabytes of data um we can't afford to be sitting around with 500 terabytes waiting for someone who might need to use it we need to be able to expand quickly uh, and cloud is the way to do that. It means you don't have to buy a load of metal and configure it and find somewhere to put it and find enough power for it and find some, some cooling for it. So uh, I think things will move more and more into the cloud. Mm -hmm. I suppose that partly raises an issue which should have been on the list of things I said before, it's, which is security. And a lot of this data is, is presumably sensitive in one way or another. Yes, so there are lots of contractual requirements around data, the um, GDPR legislation. Uh, gives a lot of that and there's a, a special category of data sort of sensitive personal data and of course being medical sciences quite a lot of ours is that so any data that can be identified back to individuals has to be stored at a much higher level of, um, of assurance but that's that's perfectly possible in the cloud I and mean, the cloud providers know that and uh, um, so long as they can show that they have taken steps to ensure security that's generally okay there are sometimes questions about jurisdiction um, you know, if your data is in the data, cent data center in the US, then uh, US law is very different to UK and EU law. So, uh, so that sometimes has to be considered. But that's that's all manageable, mm, um, mm. and that's really the the art of information governance. So it's more than just IT; it's uh, governance as well. But is that that's all still part of your remit? Um, part of my remit, but um, medical sciences division, the divisional office. Um, also has an information governance hub in it oh, right. and an information mm. governance expert. Um, it would be wrong for me to lead on information governance as the lead IT provider because I'd be marking my own homework. Really. Right. There needs to yes. be some accountability. Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah, of course, of course. 
So you were arrived into this post in, was it 2018? 2016. 2016, yes. 2016, okay. So you'd got your feet properly under the table yes, by the end indeed. of 2019. Um, and so let's get round to COVID finally. Um, can you remember when you first heard about it and how you gradually came to realise that it might be going to affect what you were doing? Well, I think over the Christmas period, um, it became a thing. Um, you know, in December 2019, it was sort of rumbling, and then I think I remember hearing radio reports late December about you know how this thing was happening um, in Wuhan and uh, might be a problem for the rest of the world. And I think the first time it um, it directly touched MSDIT services or the effects of it, um, there was a group doing a longitudinal study, so getting data from people who had been hospitalised with COVID and then tracking them um, through their journey through hospital and onwards, uh, and sadly sometimes until death, of course. But uh, So that was gathering a lot of data, and we provide a service called REDCAP, Around Research Data Capture. And I remember saying to the team in January 2020, I said, let's not put this on the REDCAP server that everybody else uses. This could get quite big. <laughs> so um, so we, we span up another server in our virtual environment, and made it quite big, um, but it rapidly got out of hand. And my colleagues had to do a lot of work sort of fragmenting that database into manageable bits through the pandemic. So yes, that's when we first became aware, well, when we first realized that the way we work was gonna be directly affected by this global pandemic. And um, we get to um, sort of mid-March, that was when the university decided it was going to um, essentially clo closed down. The students were no longer going to come in. Uh, yes. uh, you weren't supposed to come to work unless you were doing something essential. <coughs> That's right. Um, did, did that have implications for what you, ha you had to do as a department? Yes, I mean, I remember saying to the team, you know, every night, take your laptop home with you and work on the basis you may not be coming back for a few months. Because I think we all thought it was a few months then, didn't we? Nobody really thought it was two or three years. Um, so that was the immediate implication on the team. Um, but of course there's the whole of the rest of the medical sciences division. That's what I was thinking um, of. Laptops yeah. suddenly became in massive demand, as did web cameras and headphones and all those sort of things. So there was a big scrabble to, um, to provide those things. And of course providing support to people when you couldn't go near them was, was quite interesting. Um, Gerard, one of my deputies and I have many stories of standing in people's front gardens with them so they were near enough their Wi-Fi to get the signal but not going into their houses to... Uh, to put each other at risk of, of transmission. So, yes, we were extremely busy in those um, first few months trying to get people up and working in ways that they could at home. And, you know, I, I remember driving some IT kit to someone's house in Bicester and I sort of put it on her driveway and then stepped away before she <laughs> came to collect it so that we didn't have to have those transmission risks. So, yes, there was a lot of extra support. And there were specific things too. So I've already mentioned the longitudinal study that was called ISERIC. Um, meanwhile, the General Institute was doing the work on the AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, that attracted a huge amount of international attention, not all of it benign. Um, so we had um, very quickly to build a relationship with the National Cybersecurity Centre, who were very helpful and very supportive and helped us take various steps to ensure that that research and its data integrity was uh, was acceptable. So there were actual threatened cyber attacks against the Jenner, were there? 
Um, I don't remember the precise details, but um, there there were cyber attacks around the UK mm. ac academic community. Um, nothing that ever got to us, thankfully, but I think that's because we were proactive and the government was proactive in putting us in touch with the National Cyber Security Centre and making a lot of resource available to uh, to do that protective action. So that was that was helpful and interesting too, actually, dealing at that sort of level. Um, Is that not something that, something that hadn't come up previously? In, in your no. Career? Well, mm. you know, medical research happens all over the world and it's not, it's not that interesting to criminals generally. <laughs> But, uh, you know, get, getting a vaccine for COVID in late 2020 was the holy grail, wasn't it? So, uh, um, but, but for regulatory purposes, you, you have to be able to demonstrate to a very high level of confidence that the data you have about those vaccines, particularly the clinical trials, is intact. Because, um, you know, if you've got shares in AstraZeneca, it's, it's in your interest to make the data look better than it is, isn't it? And we have to make very sure that doesn't happen. So there was a lot of work also protecting the clinical trial and its data. And we made sure we were shadowing the people in the Oxford Vaccine Group to, uh, so that if any of them became ill or became otherwise unavailable, we would be able to step in and uh, continue to provide that IT. So it was an interesting time, mm. certainly. Mm, mm. And, and what about new projects that started up? Was, were there um, sudden demands for extra support well, for data projects and so on? Well, there was this thing called the Early Alert Service. Yes. Uh, which... Um, Chris Price, our divisional registrar, who I think you've spoken to, mm. um, asked MSDIT to take the lead on. So that was that was a wonderful project. Actually, we uh, we designed an IT system to integrate with the universities, single sign-on, and so on, so people could book tests and get results quickly. And um, people in their departments and colleges, called SPOCs, amusingly, single points of contact, um, were getting access to data quickly, so they could help students and staff to self-isolate appropriately and uh, essentially keep the university running in as much as it could run and uh, I think that was that was very successful in that uh, that aim and it was also a fascinating um, working across departments in a way that big organizations are not necessarily very good at so um, so we went through several operations managers I was the last one I did the last 11 months I think and we were having daily meetings on teams and uh, and of course, because it was a pandemic, there's, I built some really strong relationships with people who I'd never met and didn't meet until quite a long time later. So, uh, so that was that was fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, the input from estates to make sure we had testing pods that had enough air flowing through them, um, to building um, testing pods when we were doing the lateral flow testing and the assisted lateral flow testing. Um, University sports for basically letting me take over the sports hall and turn it into a vaccination centre. You know all those things. It was so, just so. Amazing. I mean, your responsibility went well beyond just the IT side of it. It was the whole operation. Yes, yeah, so I was responsible for yeah. the IT throughout it, but yes. then I was the operations director for the last eleven months. Yes. So yes. we ended at the end of March twenty-two. So I took it on at the end of April twenty-two. That's right. No, twenty-one. 21. Sorry. Yes. yes. <laughs> Yes, I, I previously interviewed one of a group of retired GPs who had... Ah, the results liaison team. They exactly. were fantastic. Yes, yes. Yes. They were really, really good. At <clears throat> so initially, they would phone students as soon as they saw a positive result and say, look, you'll have seen a positive result, or if you haven't, you will shortly. Um, here's what to do. They were very reassuring. 
and very directive actually as well and made sure the students isolated properly and didn't spread. Um, we were very proud that I think we managed to prevent spread from university staff and students to the general public. I don't think there were any documented cases of, uh, of that sort of spread. Mm, mm. So that was good. Yes, the results liaison team were a, a great bunch actually. Um, and you know, some of us had had them as our college GPs 30 years ago as well, so, it was, <laughs> so that was quite interesting. Um, and there were the clinical leads as well. So uh, Professor Chris Wells was the clinical lead during my time as, um, as operations manager. Um, and Chris Conlon, I don't know if you're interviewing him, but um, Professor of Infectious Medicine. No, the per um, person I spoke to was Liz Greenhall. Okay, yes, I, yes. I think I've forgotten who put me in touch with her. Um, but actually, she and I were fellow mums. I mean, our children were oh, at really? school right, at okay. the same time. Okay, so, so that's interesting. I hadn't seen her for ages. So right, yes. I jumped on the name. Thought, yes, oh, yes, she, she was kind of the... <laughs> well, her and Jean Bradlow were the lead, lead um, results liaison team people. Mm. And they had a team of about eight of them. I'm sure Liz has told you all this. Mm. Um, yeah, and they were, they were fantastic, actually. And it was the sort of situation where, you know, we all had each other's phone numbers and we could all phone at any time of day or night if something had gone wrong. So inevitably there was the, the old outbreak where we had to get in touch quickly with the college or departments and give them quick advice. And, and there was also the interface with what started as Public Health England and is now the UK Health Security Agency. <coughs> they would sometimes direct us to test a whole bunch of people. I think there was one time... We had two people who'd been singing in a choir practice who tested positive the next day, and of course our hearts all sunk. Um, and UKHSA asked us to test the whole choir, and nobody got it. <laughs> and I think that's the thing, as we went through the pandemic, levels of immunity among the population have risen. I mean, risen from infections initially, but then with more and more vaccination. So uh, transmission was not always guaranteed in situations where you think, gosh, that's going to have happened. In fact, we had a meeting in this office, oh, it's probably September time, um, five of us around this table, this very table. And then one of them um, rang me the next morning, he said, I just woke up in the middle of the night with an awful fever and I've done a great thick positive dust line. And we all thought, oh no, that's all of us, you know, inadvertent COVID party, but none of us got it, which I thought was really interesting. Mm -hmm. Was that after vaccination? Sorry, you did say. Oh yes, yes, yes it was uh, yes. September twenty-two, yes. I think. So, although vaccination recently. doesn't necessarily, well, clearly doesn't prevent infection, does it? It seems to stop you getting. Um, it, no, it doesn't stop inf infection particularly well, mm. um, but it does seem to stop severe illness, which, uh, which is good. Mm, mm. And I mean, I've, so I have talked to people about a number of big data-hungry studies like Combat and. Mm. Um, uh, I, can, I won't remember all the acronyms now, but also um, things like the work that Lisa White does, modelling and so on. Did did mm. they come to you? Did they have increased? Was there increased so there were some things. Thing? So um, Julia Hippersley Cox in yes. primary care. Yes, I, uh, I helped her spend a very large amount of money on lots of servers to do her AI work, which she basically crunches through raw data from GP servers around the country to try and see patterns. So. That was a piece of it, certainly. Um, yeah, and as I say, this longitudinal study that I mentioned, that kind of took on a life of its own and became much bigger than we thought. And is there a research angle to what you do as well? I mean, do, are there things that are newly developed? <sighs> yes, I mean, we're not really a research department, no. but uh, yes, I mean, of course, when new requirements come along, then it is our job to 
research is perhaps a slightly strong word, but certainly to investigate what's available in the market and evaluate it against requirements. Whether you call that research, I'm not quite sure. But I mean, people call anything research these days, don't they? But uh, but it's not research. But you're not involved in writing new bits of software or that, that kind of thing. It's well, I mean, we wrote software for early alert, and uh, as the landscape changed, you know, the government kept um, changing the requirements in response to the pandemic. Um, then, yes, we had to keep re-releasing the software that we'd written to run it. So that was that was quite interesting. And we developed a really sort of agile uh, release cycle. We had a really good business analyst, a chap called Brandon Donnelly, who um, was very good at keeping us to minimum viable product, but also to actually stepping us through user stories so we could make sure that what we were providing was actually fitting with what was happening at the coalface. You know, the, the students in their rooms, the spocks in their offices, the nurses in the testing pods and all those things. And, you know, all against the backdrop of having to try and avoid getting COVID. Mm, um, mm. So, yes, we did all work at home a lot, but we had to be out and about quite a bit as well. You know, if a nurse can't log into a computer in a testing pod, somebody's got to go there and help. <laughs> um, you, you, you can do some stuff remotely, but... Uh, we were out and about a bit. And of course, at the beginning, there was some departments writing letters of authority for people to leave their houses and go to work. But uh, I think we took the view that, you know, we all have university cards that say medical sciences division. Um, and if, if we were stopped by the police, we'd just say, look, actually, we're helping the university in the COVID effort. This is why we thought that would probably be OK. And actually, it was never a problem. Mm -hmm. But we just didn't know at the time. And did you need to recruit more people or did you have enough in your team? So we recruited a couple of people. <coughs> we recruited an extra developer to do some work. He was with us for about six months. And then we recruited a wonderful woman called Kaylee, who um, essentially staffed the inquiries line. So we had a dedicated phone number um, and we had a dedicated email address. And she was absolutely brilliant at keeping on top of that. Um, it was also for people to book if they didn't have IT access or IT availability. Um, so yes, that was the two really sort of administrative support in terms of just um, dealing with the inquiries and then a bit of extra development support, which we had for a few months. Mm. But otherwise, no, it was done from staff. But as I say, across the whole university, they weren't all my staff. And we took a decision early on that we wouldn't recharge for staff. So we, we had a cost center for expenses and I bought computers and swabs and goodness knows what with that. But um, but we didn't charge for each other's time across departments because we figured that was just not really going to make things any better and just make a load of extra admin, which uh, wouldn't add much. But it has formed some really good relationships. Um, and of course, those relationships endure after after the event, so that's good. Um, there's, there are some vice chancellor's awards happening next month. And one of them is about professional services people working together across departments. So, um, so I nominated the whole team that we're working with, and we have been shortlisted. So oh, we are brilliant. we're going to the awards ceremony next month. So fingers mm -hmm. crossed on the twenty first of March. And is that level of cross de departmental and cross divisional collaboration unusual compared with what was um, happening previously? I think we saw a step change in the level of it. I think, uh, in some ways, all being stuck at home um, made it a much more level playing field. You know, if, if if we want something from estates and we go sit in their building, it's very much kind of on their terms. And likewise, if HR come to us, you know, it's, it's the, the IT place. But if you're all just actually 
sitting on a team's call. Um, and you remember when it started, you could you could only see four people on the screen in a team's call. It really, yeah, it really moved on. I think that made us gel as teams in in a different way to how teams gelled before, i.e., by being in the same room and you know standing by the water cooler having coffee together, that sort of thing. We we had to learn new ways to be teams, and and it almost kind of cuts across. You know, if you've got your departments in professional services going one way. Uh, you cut across them all and make teams that are across them all. Um, it's a bit like the way academics work in the university. They group by subject in their departments and faculties, and then they group by college in a completely orthogonal way, don't they? And I think it was a bit like that with, with the COVID response as well, I think. Mm -hmm. and, and were you also um, interacting with people in your kind of job in other universities? Uh, yes. So, um, who was organising it? Um, there was a weekly Zoom stroke Teams meeting organised by, oh, it was, um, it was Department for Education, I think, actually, because it was about the schools and universities' response. So, yes, there was a weekly meeting where there would be presentations from the government about what was happening, what was coming, and so on, and then Q&A from people in similar roles around the UK. So, yes, very much so. That was... That was kind of the meeting not to miss each week, because that's where you found out everything. So that was good. And then, yes, my counterpart in Cambridge, we had a few conversations about how we'd organise things. Um, Cambridge took an interesting approach. They did pool testing. So you take a household full of students, you get them all to swab, and you throw the swabs all in together and just do one test. And then if it's negative, you don't go any further. Obviously, if it's positive, then you have to do the separate swabs. And... Uh, that was an approach that uh, they did. And, and, you know, we kind of confidentially shared stories of outbreaks and what we might have done differently to stop those <laughs> things happening. But, uh, no, it was, it, was, it was a good spirit of cooperation, actually, which was nice to see. Mm, mm. Yes, and it, um, no, it must have been... Uh, I mean, essentially, in the, in, with the, the early alert service, you were, you were dealing with people and people's problems rather than... I mean, sorry, I'm putting this wrongly... I'm not trying to say that when you're supplying somebody with a laptop, that isn't solving a person's problem, but, but it's, it's about human behaviour, isn't it, oh, a lot of the time so. yes, in, indeed. in the, um, the operational yeah. thing. And we, and we had weekly meetings for the SPOCs, one for the college folk and one for the department folk that I would attend and the medical leads would attend. Um, and In fact, the department ones were led by the safety office for the university and the college ones by one of the domestic bursts. She uh, sort of took the lead role and... That was good. But it was, I think, key to the success was lots of keeping talking to each other and being aware of what was going on. And, of course, a very strong shared sense of purpose that you don't always get in projects. But, you know, when, when the clear purpose is to keep the university running as safely and as effectively as possible, that's, um, that's pretty easy to comprehend. And nobody at any point in this project said, that's not my job. Everybody just got in there and did it. There's a there's a slide in my slide pack that says, yeah, so all about the people. Um, so Chris Price was kind of the sponsor of it. Uh, and then we had operations directors, so Jill Rowe, Martin Thornley, then me. Clinical directors, David Mant and Chris Winnells, both retired. Um, medics, Chris Conlon and Susie Donaghy. Um, I mentioned Brendan Donnelly, our business analysis, analyst, sorry. Um, and then we had people coding. So there was Pete, who's one of my deputies. He leads our systems and networks team. 
we had Christopher Corza from Central IT, who's also a bit of a demon programmer, and then uh, our contractor, John, who came and joined us for about six months. Uh, we had to have network experts, including from in MSD IT to set networks up in the pods, but also from IT services to get network to the pods. Yeah, we had stuff going in the ground on Redcliffe Observatory quarter near where you are. And so the, the pods were essentially porter cabins, were they? They, they were. Yes, yes, yes. I mean yeah. they were they were quite high class porter cabins, and they had to have quite advanced heating and ventilation systems. But uh, yes, they were porter cabins, and they had clear routes through them, so people didn't pass each other on the way in and the way out. But uh, yes, that worked. And we had people from IT services doing testing, uh, the inquiry line and email I've mentioned, our website design. And the non-IT staff, so the nurses, the SPOCs I've mentioned, the results liaison team, estates, safety office, data protection office were very helpful because there were lots of questions that came up there. Uh, and legal services in terms of contracts, because there's all sorts of things about, you know, are you a healthcare provider or are you a test provider? And uh, does the CQC need to get involved and all those sort of things? So there was a lot to navigate to actually do this in a safe and lawful way. Mm, mm. And completely different from everything you've done before. Yes. Sounds like, yes, yes. Yes, indeed. Mm, mm. And, and what are you doing now? <laughs> so, um, we're kind of back, back to normal, as it were. Um, when I started as director of MSDIT, I knew that I was joining a department with many people who'd been here for 20 years or so. Um, so I've lost about four or five people since then, but only to retirement. Nobody has left other than to retire, so that, that's quite good. Um, so that's meant I've done a lot of recruiting. Um, I've put some structure on us. There, were, there wasn't any structure when I started, so we have four teams now, the technical team and then the three customer support teams, one on the site, one on Old Road and one in the city. So there's structure, there's line management, um, regular staff meetings, making sure we're represented appropriately on university committees that touch IT. Um, we're building an IT strategy for the whole division with um, the MSD IT committee at the moment. So, yes, it just sort of goes on and on, really. And technology refresh, the technology we use to provide file and print across the division, it's quite legacy now. I mean, it was very good in the time. And it's funny, I, I helped the previous head of systems and networks build it in the early 90s when I was in my first job and he was very new here. He just retired at the end of November 22. So, uh, yeah, I'm very much overseeing a generation change and mm. getting the next generation of people in. So, uh, yes, I feel like in my time here I will go from being one of the younger members of staff to one of the older members of staff by the time I leave. Um, so that's... Uh, it, it's interesting. I mean, it's a big responsibility. But, um, and recruitment is not terribly easy at the moment. Um, we have a bit of a skills shortage, I think, in the UK. Um, and of course, people from the EU, it's much harder for them to come and work here now and much more expensive to get visas. So uh, that has rather cut our pool a bit. 10% of my workforce are settled status Europeans and they won't be getting any more of those. So uh, it's not ideal. Mm -hmm. And there are other bits of the IT sector, uh, the private companies that presumably can pay an awful lot more than yes, an indeed. academic institution can. Yes, yeah. although we are starting to see a bit of a breakdown of that. You'll have read the sort of the Silicon Valley um, is starting to cut down a bit on, on staff and Elon Musk is firing people from Twitter and so on. So, <laughs> you know, with a bit of luck and the wind in the right direction, I hope we can catch some of those people because they're generally pretty bright and pretty good. Um, but yeah, I feel like I'm, I'm in more of a kind of um, 
steering the ship on a steady course now rather than trying to avoid um, icebergs all around it. <laughs> well, let's come now to, to a little bit about what it, what it was like for you. I mean, the first question I'm asking everybody is how threatened did you feel by the possibility of getting infected yourself? I think not hugely. Um, you know, we, we've got some of the world's leading medics here who un understood COVID and the threat sooner than most people in the world. So in, in a sense, we were a bit isolated from the hype because we knew what was real and what wasn't. Um, personally, you know, I was, I, I was in my 40s at the time, uh, generally healthy, don't generally get ill with things. And I think I took the view that, you know, I won't be reckless, but we have to get on with doing what we're doing. And I think we, we all did that, really. Um, some have different attitudes to risk. But uh, I think we you know, we kept talking with the lead medics and say, look, how risky is this? Do you think we can do this? And does, does it balance the need for it to be done? So none of us got it early. I mean, we've all had it now because, you know, as you said, vaccinations don't stop you getting it. But I had it twice in 2022. The mm. first time was three days of a couple of sniffles and the second time I didn't even notice only because I did a test and I was, I was going to sing with some other elderly vulnerable people so I thought I better do a test and there it was and that messed up the whole of the next week at work of course because I couldn't come in. <laughs> um, but no I think um, you know, the, those images out of Italy will stick with us I'm sure yes. from sort of January, February 2020. Um, I don't think we were ever thinking that would happen here and it got a bit, it got a bit difficult, didn't it, in sort of March, April, May mm. time, but mm. uh, but then it eased off. Mm. And um, and what about working hours? I mean, were you working much longer hours than you normally would? Yes, I mean it's hard to gauge when you're at home, isn't it? Because everything just sort of blurs into one. I mean, we were producing daily statistics and um, daily reports for all the senior officers of the university, so they could keep up with what was going on. Um, yeah. I, I said to somebody once, I've never worked so hard, but I've never been to the office so little. You know? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it was that sort of thing. So, yes, I probably was doing more hours. I tried to make a point of having an end of day, because when all you've got to do is walk out of one room to another at home, it's, it's hard for that to feel like the end of day. So uh, I have a friend, actually, who's into um, wild swimming, and he got me into it as well. So we'd, you know, we'd arrange to meet at half past five, six o'clock or something, and just go and swim for an hour. And that was a good way to mm. make a difference between work day and evening, mm, mm. even though you're in the same place. Mm. No, that sounds like a very good way of um, retaining your sanity. <laughs> yes, yes, because yeah. it did, it did um, yes, it was, a lot, it was a lot to cope with. I mean, I don't think any of us felt that we were sort of falling apart, but it, we were very aware of the pressure. Mm, mm. And... You know, there were there were hairy moments. We were de de dealing with this early alert system we'd written. We were working with the microbiology lab in the hospital and the IT staff that managed their systems, and it worked pretty well most of the time. Sometimes they'd make changes, forgetting that that we were depending on the format of the data, and we'd suddenly say, "Why is this stop working?" And that would be a stressful few hours. Um, there was one time where. We, um, we we gave half a dozen people the right results, but for completely the wrong reasons. You know, it was a good job that <laughs> they were the right results. But you know, those those things happen when uh, when you're dealing with a um, 
an emergency like that. Mm -hmm. But do you think that the fact that you were working on something that was important and supporting all these teams of people who were doing really important stuff mm. helped to support your own sense of well-being? Yes, I'm sure it did. somebody who was just stuck at home not doing, with nothing yes. to do. No, I'm sure it did. I'm sure having a sense of purpose is very good for mental well-being. And we certainly felt that we had a sense of purpose. And, and did you um, feel that the way things like um, social distancing and who could come to work and who couldn't and all that kind mm. of thing was well managed? So it was different in different offices. I mean, being an IT provider, we're kind of essential infrastructure, so we never really made firm plans about when people could come in and when people couldn't come in. We kept in touch electronically and if we were coming in, we would say, so as to avoid other people coming in necessarily. But, you know, if a network switch stops working, you've got to come and prod it. You can't just sit at home and make it work, or you've got to come and replace it. Or if um, the vaccine trial people suddenly want 30 laptops to give to um, trial staff to gather data, you've got to come in and do it. You can't, you can't just <laughs> do it remotely. Um, so I think I was quite proud of the way the MSDIT team just kind of self-managed that, really. and. Uh, and avoided putting each other at risk. As I say, we didn't have any transmission until much, much later. Mm -hmm. um, so I think we probably all had it now. But uh, <coughs> and we've got a couple who were more vulnerable than others, so we were a bit careful with those. And there's one member of staff who never had very good mobility. Um, and when the when the pandemic started, started working exclusively at home. And is actually still doing that, and that works really well for that individual. I think we learned something there. I think, you know, if you'd said to me four years ago, okay, can you have some staff who always work at home? I said, no, that wouldn't work. But actually, it does with a bit of creativity. And that staff member comes in occasionally for all staff meetings. We used to have an all staff meeting every two months, always in person. And when the pandemic started, we switched to online uh, every month. And we're still meeting every month, but we've just started this year <coughs> doing every third one in person with an extra half an hour on it and some lunch so we can that work properly. So part of the shift to virtual working has remained as part of your normal yes. practice? Yes. Yeah. I think there are some meetings, the sort of transactional meetings with lots of people in them, uh, that actually work really well online. And in many ways, they're a bit more efficient because people don't waffle on much like I'm doing now. Um, but other meetings where you've got gritty things to deal with and you actually need to have discussion and you need to watch how people respond to each other, both physically as well as verbally, that's really hard online. So uh, I think, you know, we have discovered a new way of doing things, but it's not the, the right new way to do everything. But it is very useful in some cases, certainly. And are there any other lessons from the, the pandemic that you will be able to take forward in, in what you do? Mm. I think for the last 20 or 30 years we, we've all been talking about the paperless office and going paperless and there was still an awful lot of paper around at the start of the pandemic. We're much better at that now. There are several processes that were paper-based at the start of 2020 that by necessity couldn't be and we've actually just not taken them back to paper because it adds nothing. So uh, yes, there has been some, some learning I think. Mm, mm, mm. Uh, I think we're coming to the uh, end. Oh, and tra travel as well, you know. Oh, yes. People come in two or three days a week, and uh, and that's good. So the, the systems team particularly, they sometimes have to 
concentrate on a piece of work and actually spending a day at home to do that is really helpful for some of them. Um, the other thing I learned, I think, is that situations are different. Um, so two staff doing the same job, one of them is the one who's working permanently at home and it's working very well. The other one, quite the opposite. Um, home situation, very different, making it very hard to work at home. I'm trying not to give too many details, <laughs> so it's not to identify people. Um, that person actually worked in the office throughout most of the lockdowns on their own uh, and found that suited them very well. And it was good for us to have somebody to receive deliveries and issue things to people. So, uh, yeah, I think one size doesn't fit all. And, you know, some pe people with children who they couldn't send to school, um, for them working at home was a huge juggling act. I have huge admiration for people who manage to homeschool their kids and work at the same time. Uh, because normally we wouldn't let somebody work at home so they could do the childcare. I mean, obviously, if the child's ill, that's different. But uh, as a routine, you know, I would say if you're at home, you're either working or doing childcare. You can't do both. Mm. But uh, I think I've softened considerably on that view, mm. having mm. watched people cope so well. So people don't necessarily need to take leave if they've got a sick child at home. They could, you can trust them to just... Yeah, as I say, I wouldn't want it to go on for weeks or months. No. But um, yes, if the child can't go to school because they're unwell and they're in bed most of the day, I'm very happy to let the staff member work at home. Why wouldn't they? They could do it in the pandemic. They can do it now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we can't all work at home all the time, mm, mm. but some of us can work at home some of the time. And if that makes life easier, that's a good thing, I think. You know, like, life is hard in many ways. We have a cost of living crisis. Um, we've got employment problems. You know, we don't want to make it less attractive to work here when we're struggling to get staff already. Um, we've got a hugely congested city. People are driving in or getting in however they do twice a week rather than five times a week. That's got to help too. So there are many things, I think, that a bit of flexibility helps to enable. And you, yeah, I don't know whether to talk. I happen to be, a, I follow you on Twitter. So okay, right, right. <laughs> where you campaign about, um, about cycling in the city. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, because I live in the city, cycling around the city for me is a no-brainer almost all of the time. Mm. Um, I have a car, it sits in the garage most of the mm. time. Mm. Um, last Wednesday I had to drive down to Kent for a funeral, so I did drive. I wouldn't cycle there, but you know, for um, South East Oxford, Cowley sort of area to here, cycling reliably takes about 15 minutes. Walking takes 40, and driving or getting the bus can take an hour. <laughs> so you know, why would people do otherwise? But, uh, so yes, I, I wish the city was, was safer for cycling and more, more amenable for cycling. Mm, but, uh, mm. there's, there's, I think we need to shift people's thinking from moving cars around to moving people around, because it's not the same thing. Um, but there is too much in people's minds that, no, I can't get anywhere unless I go in a car. But it's just not the case in a city like Oxford no, at all. No, I'm completely with you on that one. Um, uh. But of course, if everybody does, then everything else jams up. Um, I broke my ankle in uh, May 21, um, and so I was quite immobile. I was sitting with a chap in, in trauma, and he said, oh, the drive here was, was really slow. I said, I don't want to get the bus, because that's really slow. And I said, yeah, that's because everybody drives and gets on the buses away. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, and actually I was cycling much quicker than I was walking after the uh, ankle fracture, because you don't have to balance on your ankle when you cycle, you're just pushing with it. It's the balance, it's the hard bit. Mm, mm. So yeah, I mean this site, it's quite good for cycling. There's quite a lot of cycle parking. 
And the nice thing is there are lots of routes into the site that you can use on foot or on a bike that you can't use in a car. If you're driving, you have to come by a heavy way, don't you? But if you cycle, you can come from Headington or you can go out to the housing estate over there and out to the Ring Road quite easily. I take the um, Marston cycle path across the university. Um, yes, that's lovely too, Park's isn't it? Road. Yes. Yeah, and then up Jack Straws Lane. Yep. Yes, and then <laughs> you, you can go across, can't you say, so you don't have to come up the main hospital road. You no. can go across Sandfield Road and come in opposite the bus stops. Mm. Yes, that's mm. what I do if I'm going down to town. Mm. Mm. And then from home, I come up across Wanford Meadow. That's another campaign. I'd love to see a proper cycle path across Wanford Meadow. But there is, there is appetite for it in some quarters, but it's a tricky balance between the County Council, the Oxford Health NHS Trust, which owns the meadow, um, University Estates, and I think Brooks as well, and the Friends of Divinity Road area. And pretty much everybody is in favour. Um, so the county council has slightly cold feet about um, the risk of getting prosecuted for putting a cycle path on a town green, um, which is a debatable risk, I think. So I've suggested that the council's legal department have a formal swap of legal advice with uh, Sustrans and actually have a look at it. So maybe it'll happen one day before I retire. We're just at the time of year where you can just about cycle over it again now. But coming from pretty much anywhere south of Divinity Road, um, it cuts out all of Hilltop Road, that top bit of Divinity Road, and all of Warnerford Lane. Um, so it's a much better route. I mean, Warnerford Lane is better now, there's no parking on it, but uh, the junctions are still not much fun. And actually, if you're coming to Old Road Campus, the meadow brings you out in the right place. It brings you out the south side of it rather than the north side of it. And I could talk about cycling and transport trains. <laughs> I'll stop. Yes, we probably have to stop. <laughs> yes. So I've, I'm just... I just throw this in because people have a tendency to wait till I've turned off the recorder and then tell me a really funny or interesting anecdote. So I just wanted to check that whether there were any um, uh, anecdotes or things that particularly stick in your mind from working through the pandemic, either on the uh, early alert service or on providing the means for the researchers to get on with their work that, that as sure, I say, that sticks sure. in your mind. Well, the thing I mentioned about how that day when my blood ran cold because I realised we'd given people the right results for totally the wrong reasons, that was a bit of a... <coughs> But, uh, you know, it was okay. Um, and you've probably heard this one before, but when you've been working with somebody online for months, if not years, and you meet them and they are completely different proportions to what you expect, <laughs> that's, that's very funny. It's like, gosh, I had no idea you were tall or I had no idea you were so short, you know, because so, everybody's just a head and shoulders on the mm, screen. Mm. So that was a thing. Um, it was really good to finally meet people, actually. Um, and it's interesting how different people work differently. Some people are completely happy doing everything online, but some, me included, aren't. I actually need to see people and be with them. And, you know, just just have a bit of physical presence, you know, and it's it's really subtle things. You watch how they respond. And I mean, you're not touching them, but you're kind of feeling them as a presence. And uh, I think that's quite important for, for mental health, actually, for mm. quite a lot of people mm. around the office. Mm. And is there, looking back, I mean, is there anything in the light of your experience that you, um, that makes you feel differently about your area of work or that you'd like to see change in the future? Well, I mean, I've talked about not forcing people to be in the office just for the sake of being in the office. Um, and my line always with the team was, you know, towards the end when we, well, we had several goes at return to on-site working, didn't we? But uh, I said, look, I'm not going to tell you where to work. What I care is that you get your work done. 
said, you know, if it becomes apparent that the place you're choosing to work is getting in the way of getting your work done, then we'll have a grown-up conversation about it. But otherwise, you know, do what works for you. And by and large, that's been fine, mm. actually. Um, I have the luxury of a team of 20 or so. If I was the registrar and I had a team of 12,000, obviously I'd have to be much more prescriptive. So it is good being at, at the level of a kind of large cottage industry almost, mm -hmm. uh, where you can be quite flexible and formal about those things. Mm. I think that suits me quite well. But what you're doing there is actually giving some autonomy back to yes. the staff member, which Indeed. is good for their mental health and, yeah. um, and, and, and is presumably quite... Um, uh, rewarding for them. I mean, it makes the job more rewarding. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I'm very clear that as director, my job is to make sure people can do their jobs and through the managers, make sure their jobs are being done. My job isn't necessarily to be friends with people, but I don't need to unnecessarily be enemies either. You know, <laughs> I'm not less trust. But <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, we have a fairly convivial atmosphere in MSDIT and I think that's worth that's that's worth keeping. One of the things that we've done for many years is we have a thing called First Friday Lunch. So we choose somewhere, often a pub or a restaurant, um, on the first Friday of each month, and we rotate it around our three sort of centres of gravity. And we always get together and uh, and have lunch and have have a good old chat. And I think we really missed that during the pandemic. We tried it online a couple of times, but uh, yeah, I'm I'm done with eating food or drinking drinks as, as an online activity. It just doesn't work. <laughs> it really doesn't work. Um, we were part of a, a, a pub quiz team, the, the Marsh Harrier pub near where I live. Um, there were about four or five teams, and we'd take it in turns to lead the quiz, and the other teams would just take part. And we kept that up on Zoom for a few months, but uh, it got to the point we were all just desperate for the quiz to finish, so we could actually have a catch-up with each other. And we thought, this is silly, you know. Um, yeah, so I suppose I suppose that's it. The the thing about being flexible, I'm mm, not um, mm. not assuming that people have to be anywhere in particular to mm. do what they need to do. Mm -hmm. Great.